Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with Chris Whitman, co-founder of Captains for Clean Water, who after two decades of guiding, made the decision to go all in for conservation and fighting for Florida's water quality issues. In this podcast, we discuss his upbringing, guiding, and his work today. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. He's out there. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? At? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Chris, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me on the podcast today. I've been following Captains for Clean Water for a long time, and I'm really excited that we can make this happen. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Before we kind of dive in, I have a long list of different questions and topics that I want to talk to you about, ranging from Turkey to an alleged Sitka deer located at FOE <laughs> uh, to many <laughs> to many other things. But before that, I would love to hear about how you first got into the outdoors and how that passion began in you. Yeah, well, I I grew up in Southwest Florida. Um, grew up uh, on a, on a little island off the coast of Southwest Florida called Sanibel. And as a kid, um, you know, I was real fortunate. To basically, living on an island is I had the freedom of basically just do what you want to do, go fish, you know, play in the outdoors. Uh, just don't leave the island and be home by dark and that that freedom you know living on an island there's only so much you can do you can get around by skateboard or bicycle and uh, the natural thing to do was was either be in the woods building forts or or uh, you know out on the water fishing or or playing in the water or surfing or any of the above and um, I think my first fishing experience was actually with my uncle um, who looking back on it now actually had no idea what he was doing. He just, uh, knew the value of the outdoors and wanted to take, uh, at that time, his only nephew out to experience those things. And, um, I can, it's funny. I, I was very young. It's like one of my, my first memories, but, um, I remember he would take me to the Sanibel Causeway and we would fish and he would he would uh, have us using these purple bass worms. And I can remember the <laughs> smell of those worms still to this day. But, you know, I didn't know any better that that he knew or didn't know. I just knew I was spending time with my uncle and 
in a really cool place and seeing a lot of cool things. And now looking back on it today, he was clueless. It's no wonder we never caught anything because we're using a purple bass worm at the Sanibel Causeway. But, but, uh, but nonetheless, I think those were some of the very first things that, that spurred, uh, my love for, for the outdoors and appreciation for those, those places. And I know before you got into your position at Captains for Clean Water that you actually were a guide for about two decades. What for you led you to guiding? Um, really, initially, it kind of changed. Initially, what led me to being a fishing guide is I think what leads a lot of people to wanting to be fishing guides or hunting guides. And that's a selfish desire to spend more time um, in the places they love. And for me, my, my family's background was in the construction industry. Um, my dad was a general contractor and built custom homes and, and uh, remodels on Sanibel Island and Southwest Florida, Fort Myers area. And growing up, that's what I did um, for income until, you know, through, through my teens and, and, by the time I was about 20 years old, um, 21 years old, you know, I had almost had a full career in the construction industry because it was something I did every single summer um, on weekends, where it's how I made money growing up. And uh, I think it, it, I kind of had a, a realization a lot earlier than, uh, you know, most people my age at that time is, is this something that I want to take over and do? the rest of my life or you know is it is it as rewarding is it rewarding enough to to for me to maintain a drive to to do that my whole life and I was kind of already burnt out you know at the age of 20 years old I was I was just a little burnt out on construction I was extremely grateful for the knowledge and the ability and I still use those talents a lot today um but but doing it on a day-to-day basis and being a very small company um, could get aggravating. You know, it just it it to me, I, I wanted more. I wanted something that that I was passionate about, um, that I couldn't wait to go do every day. And for me, at that point in time, that was fishing. And so, I decided I was going to kind of start part time and see if it was get my toes wet and see if it was something that could be sustainable and scalable and um, within the first probably year and a half um, I realized that was my calling and uh, and I kind of took a leap of faith and walked away from the family business and started uh, started full-time guiding in in uh, southwest Florida. And I know for many guides who make that jump and they do that transition, that that can be really challenging. What's interesting in talking to you is, okay, so you made that transition and then you turned around 20 some odd years later and made a really challenging um, transition to to leave full-time guiding and focus on captains for clean water. And um, I was reading a, an article in Gardening Gun and the writer of that article talked about how you were leaving, you know, the spending most days standing on a polling platform as the sun rose to having to spend more time under fluorescent lights. I thought that was a 
a really kind of good picture of some of the sacrifice that you had to make from leaving, doing what you love every day to try to go and protect that. Could you talk about that transition and some of the challenges you faced in moving from just being a full-time guy to trying to be involved in something like Captains for Clean Water? Yeah. And yeah, you know, that's, that's a really good question. Um, it, it was definitely a very, um, heavy decision for sure. Um, you know, it takes a lot of work to become, uh, an established, respected and, and very successful fishing guide or hunting guide, whatever it is, you know, it takes years to build your, your client list and, and perfect your craft. And, um, you know, after, after 20 years in the industry, um, I was really fortunate to have been extremely successful, um, as a guide, as a tournament angler. Um, I had had, you know, 90, close to a hundred percent of my clients, um, over the last second decade of, of me guiding were, were my same clients. So it was, um, it was something where I had really put a lot of effort into being the best guide I could be. And, um, and, and, and those pieces had all fallen together. So to, to, to consider walking away from that, um, was definitely, uh, a scary uh and and heavy decision um i think you know one of the things that makes you a really good fishing guide is being out on the water 300 plus days a year anytime the weather permits um whether you're running a charter or whether you're out there scouting for the next day's trip being out there every day and being in tune to the very subtle changes or what make you successful and what make you really, really good. It builds mm -hmm. upon your kind of your instincts. And so the reality was if we were going to take up this fight, it likely would require that same amount of focus um, and effort. And it just, it was just, you know, we weren't going to be able to be successful as a guide if we were spending half the amount of time on the water than I had been and I wasn't going to be able to make the amount of difference that needed to be made um, with this effort if hmm. weren't able to give it you know the same 110 percent that that guiding required hmm. and um, really I, I think it was kind of a, a look back for me I, th I think it was a lot different for me than it was for Daniel. Um, you know, Daniel, the other founder, had been guiding, I think, four or five years at the time. And he was kind of coming into being one of the most, you know, successful, really, really well-known, really successful, very talented fishermen um, in the area. And where I had kind of, I was kind of on autopilot. I was on cruise control. And, um, when Daniel called me and was like, hey, you know, I think I might have screwed up choosing this profession um, based on what's happening. I think the future of me being a guide is uh, at jeopardy or at, at stake. Hmm. And I kind of looked back at that of that wasn't really the case so much for me. Um, 
I'd already had this long career and I can, I can likely maneuver through that. But for all the other guys who I had seen grow up, um, in this industry from little kids fishing recreationally on the weekends and after school to now, uh, cutting their teeth as fishing guides, they weren't going to be afforded that same opportunity. And, and I felt like, you know, I had been given a lot by this resource and, um, and so really kind of owed it to the resource, owed it to the next generation. And, um, if, if somebody who's been able to have a, a career like mine isn't willing to step up to, to save that resource, then who could I expect to be willing to do that? So, um, that was kind of the thing. It was like, look, I, I need to kind of pay it back and pay it forward and um, take a chance and hopefully be able to get enough people involved that we see a measurable impact. And I think you guys have done a great job on that. And one of the things that we have some mutual friends, Gray over at FOE and some others, and when I hear people talk about you and your story and what you've done, a lot of what people talk about is the sacrifice that you've given to be able to try to do exactly what you said, was just try to protect something that you love. And I'm sure that there's a lot of challenges with your job, but I'm wondering what's your favorite, what's the thing that you enjoy the most about working with Captains for Clean Water? Um, yeah, you know, I'd be lying if I, if I said that giving up fiberglass and sunshine for a desk and fluorescent lights doesn't suck <laughs> because I definitely miss, uh, the outdoors, but, but I would say the same reasons that, um, propelled me or inspired me in the latter part of my career as a fishing guide, which is, um, the challenge and how rewarding it was to see people experience milestones and check off items off their bucket list uh, fishing is is there's some real similarities there to the the challenges um, and the how rewarding the work is that we do with our organization now is um, there's a lot of meaning to it you know there's a lot of purpose and likely that if if we push hard enough and try hard enough and get enough people involved that um, we can really make lasting significant impact um, for our fisheries for the outdoors for the everglades that generations uh, to come will will be thankful for and i think so i think that's the the biggest uh kind of most rewarding thing to me is just the significance of the end goal of our efforts. There's the day-to-day challenges um, and strategy, and and there's a lot, a lot of of strategy and planning and stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, you know, 99% of people don't see. That's all very intriguing to me. It's kind of like, kind of like playing chess, you know, it's, it's not about uh, each each move individually has a purpose, but ultimately it's about the end goal. And mm. I think um, I think that's the way that I look at this this fight we're in, and that's the the most rewarding part of it is knowing the significance of of what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate just the honesty about some of the sacrifices you've had to go through. 
I'm curious too, with, with a lot of anglers listening to this, what sacrifices do you feel like all anglers need to make in order for this to be successful? Um, I think one is just, is just taking some time out of their, their busy day, um, out of their life to, to realize that that they, we are responsible for the resource that gives us so much. And, and so just take the time to pay it back. And that doesn't have to require a huge amount of sacrifice. It doesn't require, you know, making big contributions or it, it, it really starts with taking time to educate yourself on, you know, what these issues are and taking the time to, to take action on those issues. We try to make that as easy as possible, um, through our website and, and through some of the action item tools that we have as it pertains to Everglades restoration, but also looking at what you can do right in your own backyard. You know, there's, mm. there's a lot of issues, unfortunately, that affect water quality around the state of Florida, around the country. And there's no way for any one group to tackle all of those all at the same time. But they're all important. And so we focus on Everglades restoration primarily because it's the largest restoration project ever undertaken in the world. And we can see the greatest benefit for the, for the biggest part of our ecosystem and the most people. Uh, their drinking water supply, the health of our ecosystem, which drives our economy. We can see the biggest return on, on that work through Everglades restoration. But... But we need people to take up those fights um, that are maybe municipality-based and in their own backyard of failing sewage infrastructure in Fort Lauderdale, Miami area, or springs nutrient load issues in the northern part of the state, or you know the aquatic spring um, plant management issues across the state and St. Johns River, uh, you know Mosquito Lagoon and Indian River Lagoon, Apalachicola. Uh, water issues you know there's there's no shortage and so really what I hope is that people um, take the time make the sacrifice to understand that that they need to play a role um, in advocating for the things that are happening in their backyard Mm. if they expect to to see those things you know thrive in the future can you give me just a for those who maybe aren't familiar, just kind of a big picture overview of what the issue is in South Florida and and what you guys are hoping will happen through the Captains for Clean Water effort. Yeah, absolutely. So our primary focus, like I said, is is Everglades restoration. And to give you a real high level kind of 30,000 foot view, uh, you know, nearly a century ago, the Everglades was you know, it was a different time, the way people saw things. And, and Florida was this kind of this land that was trying to be conquered and turned into something prosperous and useful. And so that kind of effort set in motion um, a whole series of events trying to turn the Everglades, which was looked at as kind of waste, worthless swampland, into something that could be productive, basically be developed and settled um, for communities and and be able to turn into 
an industry um, at that time, primarily agriculture. And so the system, the Everglades system, or you know, starts just south of Orlando in the Kissimmee Basin, and the water that that falls in that floodplain uh, would make its way meandering through the Kissimmee chain of lakes and winding its way to Okeechobee, where it would fill the lake and and overflow its southern southern edge of the lake and and feed the river of grass and spread out across the southern peninsula of Florida, slowly feeding um, water all the way down to Florida Bay and the Keys, ultimately. And as that system naturally did that, it, re, it, it water percolated down through the limestone substrate, refilling and, and charging our aquifers. Um, it balanced salinities in Florida Bay and provided, you know, miles and miles of, of habitat for everything from migratory birds and waterfowl to endangered species. And that system, um, in an effort to, to kind of, you know, make it prosperous, was drained. Um, they straightened the Kissimmee River for navigation, which sped the flow up from the northern part of the system to Okeechobee. Um, they ultimately dug a series of canals and built a series of levees and dams, um, bleeding the water off of the central Everglades and, and expediting its journey out to sea, both uh, on the east coast and, and on the west coast. They connected Lake Okeechobee uh, to the Caloosahatchee River, um, as well as the St. Lucie River, creating the two biggest outlets to try to get water out of that system. It was a swamp. It was a river of grass, quite literally. And so in order to farm it and take advantage of its rich muck soils, they had to get the water out of there. And that's what they did. And it, it took uh, decades to do. And ultimately, they achieved their goal. Um, there was flooding as a result. And once communities became established, South of the lake, there were some hurricanes that caused great, great devastation and death. And so um, they began flood control measures along with trying to, to get rid of the water and, and built the Herbert Hoover Dyke around Okeechobee. And basically this system that was once one big connected ecosystem had been compartmentalized and fragmented and turned into a very manipulated uh system that was that was managed by man and that um, manipulation and the water that would historically flow all the way to Florida Bay now you know majority of that water now would would compound in Lake Okeechobee and would be held to unnatural levels for irrigation supply and then when it got too high they would dump that that water out the two biggest outlets they have, the Caloosahatchee River and St. Lucie River, and and flow down the Caloosahatchee right here to my backyard. And 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 decades and decades of that change um, in in imbalance created a, a compounding effect of of imbalance in those ecosystems. Where you know my coast here, where I grew up, we were getting way too much fresh water. Where when we'd get these large volume discharges, 
it would literally turn saltwater ecosystem fresh for weeks or months on end. And anybody who's familiar with the, the balance of the outdoors and, and water in particular um, knows that, you know, it's, it's very delicate. And so you, you can't take and plummet salinity levels. Forget about the nutrients that come along with it or the algae or anything else. Just the salinity change in its, in its own um, is enough to, you know, kill oysters, kill seagrass, kill things that rely on, mm. on a certain salinity level. And the other part of that is, you know, Florida Bay and the, the central Everglades and lower Everglades, Everglades National Park, we're now no longer getting the water that it needed. And so the interior of the glades were beginning to get more and more dry. They were more susceptible to drought as we're in right now. Um, and Florida Bay began to go through cycles of being hypersaline because it wasn't getting that constant freshwater flow. So it was getting saltier and saltier. 2015, that resulted in a seagrass die-off of 50,000 acres. And, you know, that's these are all symptoms of that broken system or mis, you know, mismanaged system. And it's, it's one of those things that 100 years ago, you're not looking at the, the compounding problems. You're, you're doing things, thought that they were doing things for the, the good of the nation. And now we, we see those effects. And, and those effects get worse and worse as, as time goes on. It doesn't, the day they're able to drain the glades doesn't just immediately go into collapse. You know, I kind of equate it sometimes to if you were to be a smoker. You know, the day you start smoking cigarettes, you're not immediately faced with with lung issues but 50 years later that can lead to a lot of problems that get worse and worse so that's kind of uh that's the 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 how we got to to the problem everglades restoration that i think the one of the biggest reasons we fight for everglades restoration is it's a there's a known solution mm -hmm. it's we're not in a situation where it's like we need more research or more studies or you know like that we have a plan a comprehensive Everglades restoration plan that was put into law in 2000 is a series of 68 projects that's made to reconnect the systems that had been fragmented and compartmentalized. It's made to decompartmentalize them, returning, you know, and mimicking the timing and delivery of water to the Everglades that, that the natural system once provided. We can't go turn back the time and get rid of you know, developments and communities that are there now, but, but that very slow moving natural system that could provide water to the Southern part of the system in times of drought from previous years, precipitation, we can still mimic that timing with above ground, massive storage reservoirs. We can clean the water through man-made filter marshes and aquatic vegetation that take up nutrients. Um, so, so Everglades restoration is all these projects. It's intended to store water, make more water available in the system for dry times, um, buffer and have places to put water during very wet times, and then reconnect the the middle part of the system to the to the lower part of the system and remove some of those barriers, fill in some of those canals and ultimately lead to less 
water being dumped out the east and west coast and basically thrown away at sea and and put that water back where it's needed to recharge aquifers that you know the majority of floridians in south florida rely on for their drinking water to balance salinities and and get water back to everglades national park uh, that it desperately desperately needs so that's that's really why we push so hard for everglades restoration is there's this plan it's out there it's been out there for you know 20 years and um it simply hasn't been implemented fast enough because Hmm. there was a lack of political will and and there was a lack of public involvement to drive political will and that's that's where we recognized we had the ability to get people involved and create the will needed to get these projects done. One of the things I, I noticed when you were talking to and you look at the history of Florida in particular, um, you talked about moving from the mindset of conqueror. And uh, I think that that those first kind of originated with Leopold and um, a Sandhill County Almanac of just the idea of moving from like the mindset of a a conqueror to more of a steward. I'm curious in your life, who influenced you the most to be a conservationist? Hmm. Um, one, um, I've always had a really strong interest and appreciation for, uh, native Indian tribes, um, in Florida growing up on an island where there was Indian artifacts and Indian mounds and things like that. It was something we were taught about as a young kid and um, something I got to see uh, parts of that culture firsthand. And um, learning about those cultures um, and their respect and understanding for balance in nature, I think what at an early age was, was one of the biggest drivers um, for my understanding of the importance of conservation and stewardship, Um, not taking more that you need, not being wasteful, um, things like that. But I think later in life, um, Jose Wahebe was, uh, when I first started guiding, I was fortunate enough to, to get to meet Jose. We became friends, and I was at that time writing for a small magazine out of Tampa, and um, we were on a, a couple of different trips and ended up doing some work together he filmed one of his shows with me and as a fishing guide of you know I think I was 21 or 22 years old at that point in time to to have Jose Wahebe asked me to be a guest on the Spanish fly was kind of like <laughs> the pinnacle of you know mm-hmm. and uh, so anyway you know we became pretty good friends and kept in in close contact and Jose had a very um strong understanding and, and appreciation for conservation. Um, and you know, I think that that conveyed to everybody he came in contact with. Um, and he really gave me a lot of the roadmap that what led me to be a successful fishing guide and successful tournament fisherman as well. And then, um, I think going forward, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to become friends with a lot of, of greats in our industry. You know, Flip Pallet is a very good friend of mine, and um, we talk all the time. And, and one of the things that strikes me um, talking with Flip is he has uh, almost, a, almost a regret of his generation 
um, feeling like there was this never ending supply and, uh, and, you know, not really understanding the, the importance of, of stewardship as much. They really, they probably appreciated these places more than any other generation and really helped build industries. But, um, you know, when I talk to Flip a lot, it's, it's kind of like he wishes his generation had done more. And, um, so I kind of see some different perspectives and, um, and I, I think, the combination of all that from the experiences that shaped me as a kid to the guidance um, that I got from people like Jose to the conversations um, that I have with some of my friends like Flip and, and guys from his era, um, I, it, I think those things all work together to, to give me the, the appreciation and the importance of mm conservation stewardship going forward hmm. that, that's helpful um i'd love to move into some rapid fire questions which i always jokingly say they're never really actually rapid fire it's just my way of asking a bunch of random questions that i've incurred while researching for this are you ready for that sure okay so there's a lot of controversy around an alleged sitka deer located at foe I need to hear the the background to that because I actually have no context. I, I've just heard about this controversy. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the alleged Sitka deer. Uh, is that the, the sound of denial? Can I? Is this like? Can I plead the fifth? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, eventually, I guess it's going to come out. But uh, let's. I'll. I'll Hypothetically, we could say um, that uh, we had a buddy that uh, was would hunt with us. It was hunted one of our properties with us. That uh, I'd say he has what I would call is like a tree stand ADD, and he'd get mm-hmm. till about nine thirty in the morning and would get a little antsy and uh, would would need to go on a walkabout. And then maybe the next day or that afternoon, he would want to sit in a different stand. And later on, he'd want to sit in another stand. And uh, so kind of like before you knew it, over the course of four or five days, there was a dozen or so stands that had been sat in. And and uh, he was always kind of chasing the deer on this camera or that camera or whatever. And so um, I think uh, we had a, a some grand ideas formed over some bottles of bourbon around a campfire as most really good (laughs) ideas um come from situations like that that uh we would enhance some of his game cameras (laughs) and uh we started doing that with white-tailed deer mounts from around the different lodges Mm -mm. and um kind of putting them peeking around palmettos and pine trees and whatever and and um <laughs> it wasn't very long before you know we got kind of bored with that and uh, decided you know what how much how much greater can we make this and mm-hmm. i remember we were looking for you know skunk ape costumes and we wanted to have a, a bigfoot back in the background or 
you know, different how crazy a thing's. Well, there was a, a bar down the road that had a full body mount Sitka deer in it. And, um, you know, we thought that would be pretty hilarious if we could <laughs> take that full body mount and uh, have it appear in the woods. And, you know, I don't know if the bar owner ever did let us take that mount, but it was... Uh, it was a pretty good idea. I think that uh, that probably those ideas are probably where some of that folklore comes from. <laughs> yeah, you know, game cams have a long history of pranking. My dad had a friend that he had killed a white-tailed deer, a white-tailed buck, and uh, as a prank, knew where one of his buddies' uh, cameras was, and he dragged the full body in like a poacher outfit in front of the <laughs> camera to see <laughs> like he was poaching the land and the guy got fired up and was you know just making a huge ruckus over it uh but that honestly that that was better than i ever could have dreamed that question uh would be uh a little a little hard to follow yeah um, that's probably good but you uh, gotta protect identities I, I, I watched a uh, video called Tarpon the Silver King, and in it you were sharing some of the history of tarpon fishing, and I know that you were, earlier you mentioned some of the history of Sanibel. Um, I was curious, are, are you a bit of a history buff? Would you consider yourself a history buff? No, I don't think I would. I definitely have a real appreciation for um, people who paved ways and did significant things. I grew up in a town, you know, once I moved off Sanibel, um, I lived for shoot 15 years um 20 years uh, a mile and a half from thomas edison's house and library and and henry ford's house and um so you know i think just being the circumstance of growing up in a place where you had people like thomas edison and henry ford and firestone and you know, Zhang Gray, all the very significant historical people um, had a pretty big impact in, in the town I grew up in. Um, I, I think that naturally built an appreciation for um, historical significance, but not a history buff in the sense of like that I'm constantly um, learning about different historical things but I think that uh, I think history plays a really important role in you can learn from the past whether it's successes or mistakes and that if you don't look to the past for guidance to the future that you're probably doing yourself an injustice and and um, I think we have a, a lot to learn from the past so I, I do have an appreciation um, and I and I do try to look at occasionally through different historical lenses um, at specific things that that I might be focused on at the moment, whether it's turkey hunting or fishing or whatever. But um, but I don't know that I would be considered a history buff. Hmm. I look at history for the big picture, um, but I, but I think if you ask me, you know six months later to give you a report. I don't remember a lot of the like nuanced details, but, but I get like mm -hmm. the, the overarching picture of, of what happened. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was researching for this podcast, I realized that you have had a, a long history in media. Just you've been on several different podcasts. You've been on CA's podcast. You've been on 
uh, April. Uh, you, I think you've been on April Vokies, haven't you? Yep. Podcast. Yep. Um, you've been on some television shows. Uh, what has been your favorite media project that you've got to be a part of outside of anything tied to Captains for Clean Water? My favorite media project um, was probably the, well, two things. One would be the ESPN Redfish Cup, and that was more so, uh, I was on the front end of that as far as a competitor, um, but it was ESPN, mm-hmm. and it was, it, it, I got to see big, um, you know, complicated production with, you know, post-production trailers and, and, and production rooms on set to helicopters and, you know, big, big production stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. that was very, very cool to be part of when it was happening. Um, but I'd say probably my fondest one would be, would be, uh, working with my buddy Kevin at colorblind media and, um, producing my own television series in 2014 and 15, um, getting to take a lot of the things that I learned from Jose, um, and a lot of the inspiration that came from him and Flip Pallet and Rob Fordyce and Carter, John Donnell, like all, all these guys that I kind of idolized growing up, um, and putting that into, um, kind of bringing the viewer into a glimpse into, into my world and how, those places kind of affected me or, or different places that were special to me. So I'd, I'd say that it was wild instinct outdoors was the name of the show. And I think that was probably one of the, my fondest memories as far as in the, in the media world was really building that from the ground up, um, to, to show people, um, what, what the important places or significant places to me growing up were, and it was everything from the Everglades to Wyoming and Montana, snowboarding and trout fishing. It was hunting. It was, it was Belize. I mean, it was just really like, if you ask me, I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, a fisherman or a hunter. I'm just an outdoorsman. I love it all. Um, I love surfing. I love scuba diving, um, love, love hunting, love fishing camping just being outside so it's like all those things riding horseback I mean it's not so much about the the action as it is like the setting in in which all those actions take place and so that was really what I tried to get across with with that tv show and I think that was probably one of my most memorable kind of media projects yeah, I stumbled across that when I was doing research for this. And I have to say, it's probably the coolest intro video trailer <laughs> to that show that I've ever seen. I was very uh, excited to do anything and everything outdoors. So that, that looked like you guys did a great job. I'm going to check it out. Well, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, it was. And, that, and that's really, we didn't want it to come across like a, like a fishing show. Or, you know, it was funny when we did that show, I actually got a ton of feedback from across the country from people who were not fishermen, were not hunters. They wouldn't consider themselves avid hunters or avid fishermen. Some people who had never been hunting or fishing before, but they all would message and, you know, they tune in every single weekend to watch the show. And I think that was something that was unique about the way we went about that is it, it appealed to people like myself who literally like woke up every day living to, to be in the outdoors and go fish or go hunt or surf or something. 
um, to the people who have never done that. But it kind of uh, appealed to, to a lot of people, both within um, our community as outdoorsmen and, and outside of that community. Mm. So I, I need an honest answer here, speaking of media. So obviously with Captains for Clean Water, you do a ton of uh, interviews and tons of writing. And uh, you just you ha- you talk about water and water quality a ton. What is your least favorite thing about your job or, or biggest challenge that you encounter? Me personally? Yeah, you, yeah, you, you personally. Is there anything that you're really tired of? E- emails? You know, emails? I, <laughs> I suck at emails. Big time. I would imagine you get a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what, what's your email if anybody wants to send you some emails <laughs> asking questions? Yeah, you can, you <laughs> can email me all you want. You most likely won't get a response. No, you know, um, a big part of the success of our organization is our communication efforts. Probably the biggest part. Um, you know, our the our our role is outreach, uh, education, and advocacy. And we use outreach to educate people, and then by educating them, uh, get them to become advocates. And so, mm-hmm. in order to do that, especially in today's day and age with digital media, um, communications is is key. And I'm kind of like an ideas person, um, but I I get really bored really quickly with like execution of stuff. I like to come up with ideas, and mm-hmm. so um, you know we're very fortunate to have a, an unbelievable communications team at Captains for Clean Water. We're very small; we have eight people, <laughs> eight person staff, but. Um, you know, we've got uh, Alicia Downs, who's been a friend of mine for a long time. Um, has She came from the kind of marketing and PR world uh, for Harley-Davidson, and um, she's our communications director. She's a much more talented writer than I am. That's for damn sure. Um, but uh, but she, she gets she, – her husband's a fishing guide, and she grew up – uh, in the outdoors hunting and, and fishing. Um, so she's a, I think fifth generation or sixth generation Floridian. Um, she, you know, she gets it as part of her life. And so a lot of our, um, writing and all of our, uh, communication stuff runs through her. And, um, you know, I think she's a, a big reason um, she's probably the biggest reason of, of the message that people receive. I more so play a role of, here's an idea. I think we could do a film, um, about this person or about this event. Um, and, and, and here's the connection that, that it, that it makes and the significance it has. And we have a, a, a younger guy, um, in his, low early 20s that that just started with us not long ago noah who does uh, a lot of great video production work and um i think the combination of of all of us kind of weighing in on ideas and then everybody using their expertise um to to pump out the the product that goes out to the public to to get them educated and get them to take action um all, 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 it's definitely a team effort. Um, you know, if, if I had to write a monthly newsletter, like Alicia does amongst dozens of other of her responsibilities, 
I would I would be there all month trying to get that thing cranked out just because that's not my that's not my nature. I'm more so come up with some the ideas and and have mm-hmm. have a really good team to help me execute them. Yeah, and speaking of kind of team and working together, one of the huge positives that I've seen already uh, from Captains for Clean Water is not just the environmental difference, but also I feel like the unity that it's created within the outdoor industry, especially in in our region where a lot of different anglers and captains and companies have come together uh, to try to kind of rally around it. I know one of our sponsors of the show, Hell's Bay, does a lot with Captains for Clean Water and we've seen a lot of buy-in yeah. from different different people, and I think that's been a really awesome part, a, a, a by a, almost a, a kind of byproduct of fighting together for better water has also created, I think, better teamwork and friendships across the board. Do you have any uh, tips or any? I, I'm trying to think of how to word this, but do you have any, I guess, suggestions on how we could see more unity in the outdoor world? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I think that's probably the most significant um, thing that that we see action from our industry on is that that unity and the willingness of unity amongst competitors. You know, the outdoor space is um, very competitive. You know, whether you're looking at boat manufacturers or tackle manufacturers or apparel or um, in anything that has to do with either equipment or or tools or, or media outlets, you know, people with TV shows, it's all very competitive. Um, but what we've seen is, one, when we started this effort, the outdoor industry was the most affected by water quality issues. Um, yet we were, our industry as a whole was very far removed from the efforts to really drive, um, some, some progress. There was key people who were talking about it and had been shouting from the bows of their boats for a long time, but there was, there hadn't been a mechanism to like kind of get our arms around all these different independent people, whether they're fishing guides or boat manufacturers or, anybody else and and that was what we recognized earliest was the the outdoor industry had the ability to really move the needle here um and Mm -hmm. was arguably one of the only ones that could um and in order to do that we were going to have to lean on our relationships that we'd built as fishermen and outdoorsmen and and you know get our industry as a whole involved and now we've seen that to where you know you see Hell's Bay and Yellowfin standing side by side. You see, you know, competitors in with different TV shows like C.A. Richardson or Benny Blanco or you know Rob Fordyce or Carter Andrews or George Gods. You see all these guys, Tom Rowland. They all have their own shows. They're all competing with each other for those same advertising dollars across the same industry. Yet they stand side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, in support of each other when it comes to water quality. And we're actually, you, you see it a lot with they're being guests on each other's shows and they're yeah. putting sponsorship, um, you know, recognitions aside for the greater good. And that's something that like, you know, when I first started, uh, you know, in the, in the kind of outdoor media world, 
you know, I was friends with all these guys and it's, oh, well, I can't necessarily do that show because I'm tied to this sponsor and they're tied to a competitive sponsor. And mm-hmm. it, there was these real hard lines and lanes that everybody had to stay in. And now mm-hmm. um, the industry as a whole understands that none of that is as important as water quality. And so the return they get and those those lines have now people are a lot more free to cross over them and the brands understand it and and don't look at it Mm -hmm. as these hard you know you can't do his tv show because he's sponsored by this sunglass company or this boat company or this apparel company um you know we've seen a like a change now that that that's what's really opened up um or gathered the people for this movement is is getting the industry to stand side by side with their competitors because uh, whether whether you know we're competitive in in any of these roles you know together we we're strong and Mm -hmm. fragmented we fall and if and if the industry falls everybody falls and if the industry Mm -hmm. is strong and and succeeds everybody can succeed so Mm-hmm. That's the mindset I've seen. Um, I think suggestions is just that, you know, people look at the big picture and the long-term um, end result that you're looking for. And is it about, you know, pushing a product today or is it about creating a sustainable long-term economy that can support products for years to come? And I think having that that long term goal is is the most important thing, and realizing that we're going to get there by by everybody standing side by side with their competitors. I think the very first video that Captains for Clean Water ever produced is a really good example of that. It's the Captain's Anthem, mm-hmm. and we we wrote the the kind of the script or message behind that. It you know, two o'clock in the morning back at our hotel room over some beers after, uh, after the first day of ICAST back in 2016. And, um, the next day we went to the show floor and went around to all our buddies throughout the industry and said, Hey, we, we need to, we need to put this message out there. And every single one of them said absolutely. And came and you look back at that video and you got all these guys who have the best and most well-known TV shows in the industry um, mm-hmm. who were, were literally walking that floor 10 minutes before that selling companies on why they should invest and support their show over other shows. And, and um, those guys were the leaders, you know, those, all those ambassadors and, professionals are in that video they were the leaders that set the bar that said we're going to put our our competitive um nature or the competition aside and stand together on this issue and they really set the bar um that the industry has since followed yeah that video is fantastic too it's a i'll I'll make sure to include it in the blog post on the web website um so i know you do a lot with foe and i got mutual friends over there great that's a great team um did you participate in the barbecue cook-off, the Traeger barbecue cook-off that they did, the rib cookout? Oh yeah, I participated in the eating of the ribs. <laughs> did did you did you happen to grill any ribs? No. Or? So and yeah, Gray's Gray is one of my best friends. Um, 
He is one of my groomsmen in my wedding, uh, Lacey Kelly, who uh, runs operations up there. Um, I've known since she was probably, I don't know, 15 years old. Um, she grew up in, in Fort Myers. Her dad is a huge outdoorsman, um, mm -hmm. commercial fisherman, f diver, hunter. Um, and she's the real deal. You know, she, she grew up in it very similar to, uh, Alicia and how Alicia grew up influenced by her mm -hmm. dad in the outdoors. But, um, no, there's some, you know, I, Gray and Lacey are, are family to me and, um, any time that I'm able to, I'm <laughs> I'm up in Chiefland uh, at FOE. It's it's one of my favorite places in the state. It's one of those few places that's still somewhat wild and untouched. You know, it's the nature mm -hmm. coast, and and um, a lot of what I you know love about Florida seems to seems to fade and get little smaller and smaller and fewer and fewer every year with mm -hmm. development and and increasing uh you know population growth and amount of people on the water mm -hmm. especially in my area here i mean the amount of boats on the water alone on a weekend today versus when i was a kid is that it's it's insane um so i i i try to i try to slip away to to chiefland as often as i can and i've been guiding um turkey hunts with with gray up there for a long time now and um one of one of my most f favorite places to be if i had to choose it'd be between you know if i could spend my time between chiefland and the everglades that would that would do it for me mm. but but no the, the life. it is yeah the the rib cook-off was was amazing um it actually was going down during deer hunting season and with me being as busy as I am at Captains for Clean Water I hadn't nearly got to spend as much time sitting in a tree stand with my bow as as I wanted so I kind of had to I was up there and I had to I had to weigh the decision of of getting in the mix on the rib cook-off or getting another another sit in the stand and I chose to go sit in a tree that day and, and come back and judge the ribs. So, uh, mm -hmm. that was a good decision. Yeah. I, uh, we have a, we have a deal with Traeger. Uh, they're, they're a segment where I try to gather together barbecue recipes. And I know that Brett Martina, who was one of my former guests on the podcast, won the rib cook off. Yeah. Uh, and I also know with a hundred percent certainty that Brett would never share his recipe, uh, <laughs> because he's very secretive. Um, but do you do you to you what what to you makes a, a great a great rib? Yeah, well, since you're a judge, I'm talking of all, to a judge. First here. of all, Brett crushed it, um, and you know, in in true Brett Martina fashion, he uh, he kind he he looked at the gray areas of the rules and that this was a rib cook off. It did not specify the ribs of which animal. Um, had to be used and so uh, you know where where the natural tendency is for a barbecue rib is to go to a you know pork rib baby back or st. Louis and um, Brett kind of kind of went outside the box and went with a 
with a beef rib that he had flown in from some exotic place in the North America. And, um, tell you what, it was, they definitely stood out, but you know, all the, all the guys, um, at camp are really good cooks for the most part. Um, when we're up there for turkey season, you know, we're, we're living together as a family for two months basically. And, um, everybody kind of takes up some time to, to cook dinner a couple of the nights and whatever. But to me, the ultimate rib is it's got to be tender. It's got to be juicy. And um, the the meat and the flavor of the meat and the smoke and the wood that it was cooked with should um, be the defining flavor. It shouldn't be overpowered by spices or sauce. Um, I think a, a good rib should be able to be uh, eaten with without sauce and enjoyed, you mm. know, just as much. And so uh, that was a that was a tough decision, but um, but I'm also uh, I got a soft spot for a good uh, beef short rib. So, <laughs> well, Brett actually he told me that the ribs he cooked were actually um, uh, that axis deer. So <laughs> he he found it out in the woods and he got it. That's uh, no, uh, that's that would make a lot of sense. That would no, make a um, lot of sense. <laughs> my uh, <laughs> my my last question is you know and I really love to ask this question. It's called Captains Collective, and I, I focus predominantly on interviewing fishing captains and other industry leaders, people who are involved in that community. And, uh, I often ask people what makes a great guide. And I'm interested to hear that from you because I know part of what you do with captains for clean water is work with a lot of, of great guides to you. What are the characteristics that make somebody a great guide? Oh man, that is, I think one is, um, what really makes a great guide is something that, um, can't be taught. It's a, an instinct of, of like, your outdoor surroundings and how animals behave and function in those surroundings and the, the little subtle things that, that that, you know, a good guide picks up on and is aware of almost subconsciously. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things, but the other thing is someone who is, um, absolutely obsessed and is uh, willing to, work you know that much harder than everyone else or you know is is literally just obsessed by by the creatures they pursue and and the the habitats that they inhabit um that's what what makes a good guide because that's going to shine through and i mean there are being born and raised in florida i mean this place this place is responsible and and the, the literally some of the best guides around the world uh, call Florida home, and um, you know it's it's kind of one of those things where there's guys that no matter how good um, you know I could have ever hoped to be as a guide that there's just guys that are on a, a whole nother level um, that that are out there that you know I think inspire people to 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 work as hard as you can you know the hard work shows being a guide is not easy it's not a 
a glamorous job that everybody kind of might see it through um, when they step on a boat for one or two days out of a out of a year but to be a guide who can grind and fish that hard for 300 days a year um, and do it on the 300th day which is with as much passion and drive as they did it on the first day uh, that takes that takes a special special person and someone with a lot of tenacity and with a lot of passion and I think I think that's what passion for the outdoors is is the number one thing that that makes a good guide Hmm. that's good Chris thank you so much for hanging out with us on the podcast and I'll make sure that we have a link in the blog post on where they can learn more about um, captains for clean water and uh, I really just appreciate this time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Hunter. Appreciate you having us, and thanks for your support. And uh, look forward to to hearing some more of your great podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective.